Romans chapter 12. And we're just going to read verses 1 and 2. And then we'll look at those in just a moment. So it says here, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Uh, Let's have a moment of prayer before we continue. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this evening to, to learn more, more deeply, more personally, more truly how to pray, uh, help us to understand, help us not only to to see what you do in your word, but to see who you are, and that our response would be one of adoration and worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a a quote at the top of your notes, if you've you've got them there, which uh, summarizes some of what we're talking about. It says, people talk as if prayer is the way we get God to give us what we want. Those who think this way seek prayer promises, techniques, locations, mediators, and other methods they believe will influence God or place him under obligation. But scripture points in virtually the opposite direction, indicating prayer communication with the living God as a means he uses to give us what he knows we need. Um, And that's really what we've been talking about all along and it's it's you know, like he says there there are some crazy ways that people try and manipulate god into giving them what they want um, and uh, we're not trying to manipulate god into getting what we want but for god to change us as we pray and see him so as we've been talking about that we've been talking about four principles in the last few weeks we've done three of them and uh, we're at the fourth one this week And the first one was how abiding guides our asking. And that is how that when we're going to pray, we need to start in the Bible. Um, And that's why we need a a good time and a good place to sit and spend time with God. Um, Not just reading it so that we can know what it says, but abiding in it. Finding out who God is in there, letting it dwell within us so that our lives are brought into line with who God is and what God says. And so that's where we started. Abiding guides are asking. So we're looking to see who God is first. And then we talked about how his spirit ignites our supplications. And that is giving ourselves and relying on the author of the scriptures to help us understand and see what the scriptures are saying and guide us in learning to apply that. Uh, How does this aspect of God or this truth of God then influence how we should ask or what we should ask for and that he empowers our prayers through that? Then last week we talked about God's name and how his name corrects our nonsense. That is, um, seeing who God is, recognizing by the way he reveals himself and having that change uh, the way we request because instead of just talking to God as if he's some genie, we begin to understand who he is by how he expresses himself uh, and becoming overwhelmed with who God is. So out of the four principles, this is the fourth one tonight, 
which is how revelation motivates our response. How revelation motivates our response. Um, one man who relied a bit on it through this, uh, I think Daniel Hendrickson says, worship is the response of all I am to the revelation of all he is. So that's what worship is. And that's what we've been saying. Prayer is really worship. And true prayer is about worship, not just asking God for stuff, but it's about worship. So worship then, and true worship and true prayer is a response, my response of giving me to God as I see who he is. And that's what Romans chapter 12 is, is saying to us. So we see God, we give ourselves as a living sacrifice. We live for him and give ourselves to him. So I think the first on the notes, if you've got the notes there and you're filling in, there's a fill out at the top, which is this. Revelation always requires a response. Revelation always requires a response. So I say it often uh, and for, for a very long time that every time you open the Bible, a change should take place. You shouldn't leave the same when you open the Bible. Revelation of God always requires a response. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go through and what I mean by that. So how does God reveal himself? There's a number of ways he does. How does God reveal himself? Scriptures? In the Bible? Yes. Yep, okay, so right now that's the, the clearest, the, uh, the, the best way that we have right now that God reveals himself to us. What other ways has God revealed himself? Yes. Through the Spirit? Yes. The Spirit opens our eyes, reveals who Christ is to us. He works in us, draws us, opens our eyes. In creation. So God reveals himself in creation. And then uh, he reveals himself in conscience, too. So this is what God has put in us. Now, creation and conscience um, have both been corrupted because of sin. So we don't see God as clearly and as purely as we ought to uh, through those things, even though he is clearly seen. Ultimately, God reveals himself in Jesus and in our time most clearly or most understandingly in his, in his word. So... The key is this, I think this might be as a fill-in union note too, the key is this. If worship doesn't lead you to response, you've missed something very important. So if worship doesn't lead you to a response, you have missed something important in what you have done. So given all that we've been talked about the, in these last few weeks, and that what we're talking about is a prayer which comes from worship, a worship-based prayer, then prayer, if we're starting with worship, so if we're starting with abiding in God's word and letting the spirit open our eyes in God's word to change us and then responding to who God is, that's worship. So worship then naturally leads us to a response to God and how we see him and what should come after that. If there is no response, so if we... Uh, hear God's word, we read God's word, and, and God reveals himself to us as we look, and he's clearly done that in the word of God. And there is no response, we have not worshipped. Worship is response. 
So if we come to the word of God, and if we haven't changed, if we don't respond, we can't call that worship. Right? So if we come to church and we sing the songs and we hear the sermon and we do what we do and we leave and that's it, we don't ponder anything, we don't question anything, we don't see God or understand God more deeply and respond, then we haven't truly worshipped. So it hasn't been a worship service for us. If we sit in our own quiet time and we read the word of God, we read through it quickly and we say our quick prayer and we go off and within an hour we've forgotten anything about it, we haven't worshipped. We've read. Worship always brings a response. You know, it's like when you go out, um, you sightsee, or maybe you're somewhere and you, you see something amazing. Nowadays, it, it happens real easily. We see something that excites us and we whip out our phones and we take a photo of it. And the reason we take the phone out and we take a picture of it is because it's drawn a response from us. We've seen a sunset that's beautiful or uh, our kids have done something funny. And so we, I, I want to remember that. And then we post it on Instagram with some quote so everybody knows what's gone on. Right? And that's the way it should be with God. When, when we see God, when God reveals himself to us, there's a response. It moves something within us. Uh, now, when I say that it always deserves a response, or it always brings a response, I don't mean that it's always an earth-shattering response. Right? So when I say worship is a response, that doesn't mean that every time I come to the word of God or, or hear it or the way that God reveals himself through the word that I'm going to be overwhelmed with, with my sin and break down in tears over my sin. Now that will happen sometimes, or that I'll be completely overwhelmed by by the glory of God, and I'll break out in song. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be some earth-shattering response. Sometimes the response that's drawn from us out of it is just like small course correction. Ah, okay, I've lost my way here. I need to make sure I come back here. But it's a response. It's a way that we've seen something of God and say, okay, here's a way I need to, in a big or small way, align myself with God and his word again. So it doesn't mean that response is always immediate either. That's why the Bible speaks to us about meditating on God's word. Right? So it doesn't mean that immediately as you sit down and, and you, that it's going to be an immediate response. You know, to meditate means we're going to take that. And we're not going to forget it, but we chew it over in our mind. We think about it so that in time it will bring its desired response. When we come here to Romans chapter 12, one of the things that makes these first two verses, Romans 12, so amazing and so transformative is Romans 1 to 11. So Romans 1 to 11 are filled with the most magnificent teaching about the great depths and glories of salvation. You know, Paul takes us from beginning through to end of how God works in salvation, from how deeply rooted in our sin we are and how terribly it's corrupted us to how wonderful the grace of God is to reach into that sin. And then the depths of what Christ does in us by drawing us to himself, by justifying us and sanctifying us. And so you read through the first 11 chapters of Romans and you become completely overwhelmed by the glories of Salvation and what God has done for us through Christ Jesus. Our sinfulness, the, the debt we owe, the peace that God gives us. 
the presence of God being sovereign in all things. Now, when Paul takes and he, he writes all of those things, so that's just a broad brush summary of Romans 1 to 11, and I'm pretty sure in the last couple of years somewhere you've gone through Romans and spent a significant amount of time, so you probably have an idea of Romans 1 to 11. So in, in the end of Romans 11, those last three verses, three or four verses, verse 33 through verse 36, having spent all of this time writing down the glories of the salvation we have in Christ Jesus, how does Paul respond to that overwhelming truth? Amazement. Absolute amazement. So he's just spent all this time and he's written and he's gone through some of the most glorious depths of eternal truths. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. This is one of the great benedictions. This is one of the great praises of Scripture. And you'll find this with Paul often. He writes about some of these great things. And before he moves on to the next section or even moving into the next section, he has these magnificent moments of praise. This, as he's sat and he's thought about this, to Paul, this wasn't just a letter to teach people about what salvation was like. While he is writing out these glorious truths, it is affecting him. It's changing him to the point where he cannot go on until he expresses his absolute adoration and praise for God. He is in awe of God. And so all of that brings him there to that awe, which is why chapter 12 begins the way it does and moves to where it is. So he's told us all about this great salvation. He's brought himself to this place of response of God is awesome and wonderful and powerful and glorious. So then where does Romans 12 fit into this? Where does this truth-based Revelation-fueled worship lead Paul. So he said, how glorious is God because of all he's done. What's Revelation 12 got to do with all of that? Is it just new chapter, new section? What's Revelation 12, or Romans 12, 1 and 2 about? That's right. That's right. So it, his, his response isn't just praise. He says, because of all of this, there is a real practical response to what God has done. This is, is worship. So what does, that, what does that look like? What does Paul expect this real practical expression of worship will look like? Beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, your mind. So it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be sacrificial. So he's just, this is everything Christ has done for me, and I am in absolute awe and adoration of who he is. And that adoration and that glory and that awesomeness of God needs to come out in a practical way. 
What is that practical way going to be? Sacrifice. I'm going to practically give my life for Christ. I'm going to commit to obey. That's why the verse begins, I beseech you, or I plead with you, therefore. Right? That is, I'm pleading with you. Because of everything I have told you about your salvation, respond in worship. Yeah. Absolutely right. It's an expression that Christ is Lord. So if I've truly believed everything that he said in Romans 1 to 11, then I will submit myself because he is Lord. That's what true salvation looks like. So all that God is, a submission to all that, that God is, worship that has welled up within us, propels us forward to a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. The key is a spiritual growth. So when, we, when I said at the beginning that worship always leads to change, if we're saying that prayer is a form of worship, then prayer should be changing us. We shouldn't be the same as we continue to pray as we ought. We will change at the, the deepest level. So tonight we want to look at, at four essential responses. Now, as we go through these responses, um, consider them, pay attention, think through them more, because what I want you to do this week is I want you to read through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, because that's where we're going to get next week. As you read through the Lord's Prayer this week, I want you to see if you can find these four responses or these four actions in the Lord's Prayer. The next week, we'll look through and we'll see how, how these all work together. So we want to look at four essential responses that come through prayer. Now you've got it in your notes there as we start on this, his face evokes our faith. His face evokes our faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You know, we've said this often, too often we approach God with things that he doesn't desire. We come to God and we, there are things we desire, but he doesn't desire. Or even that he, he deserves. And so we come to him with our own desires and our own agendas. And we come to him with our selfish requests and our, our selfishness of, of life. And when we come to God this way, that doesn't bring God pleasure. Neither does it bring God glory. God, God does find pleasure in giving good things to his children so it's not that if we go to God and we say God I want this and, and or this is what I need or we have these desires that God's holding it back because he doesn't like us or doesn't like to give good things you know he says Jesus says even in Matthew 7 you, even you a, a father uh, who's a sinful man knows how to give good gifts to your children how much more do you think your father in heaven knows how to give good gifts to his children James tells us every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. 
So God loves to give to his people. It is his pleasure. It is his joy to give to his people. So he has no pleasure in denying us things and withholding gifts that could be ours or that should be if we approach him the right way. Here in Hebrews 11, see, it begins here, but without faith it is impossible to please him, but he who comes to God must believe that he is. He must believe that he is. So that is a statement of understanding who God is, the revelation of God himself, and believing God's revelation of himself. As our eyes are open to understand who he is, we are drawn to put our faith in him. We see God more clearly. The more clearly we see God, the more passionate we are about pursuing him. It's in a sense when, when we begin, like from the moment of salvation, and this is the first place where it begins, when our eyes are finally open to see the glory of God in Christ Jesus and the salvation system, and we, we see that. We are then at a point where, at least from our understanding, we cannot say no. And it's not because we're being, it's against our will, but we have been allowed to see the glory of Christ. When you see the glory of Christ, how are you going to say no to that? And that same thing continues through our life. The more fully, the more clearly we see God himself, the more passionately we pursue God himself. We can't back away. We see him more clearly. So as we look at Hebrews 11 there, how does God respond to true faith? How does he respond to faith? So we're looking at the second half of that verse. He rewards it. He is a rewarder of that faith. Worship leads us to see who he is. Now, what is that reward based on? And he is a rewarder of them who seek him. He is a rewarder of them who seek him. It doesn't say that he is a rewarder of those who seek what he can do. It's a rewarder. He is a rewarder of them who seek him. Is that not what we've been saying all along? As we've been looking at verse after verse after verse through scripture, where it says, seek my face. See who I am. And so that's where we've come with this statement, seek God's face before we seek his hand. We see who God is first before we ask what he can do. Seek his face first. How is, how is faith instilled in us? How is faith grown in us? How does God do that now? Romans 10, 17, if you need a, a quick reference of the answer I'm looking for there. God's word. The word of God. Hearing and heeding the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that's, as we've said, this is where we find out who God is. So the first response is that his face evokes our faith. That is, as we look for him, our faith is grown because we see God himself. The second response is this. His character motivates our confession. And this is another natural response. His character motivates our confession. 
the more deeply the Bible is read and heard and cherished, the more practically we apply it, the more deeply the Spirit begins to expose our need and our sin and our insufficiencies. That's why John writes in, in 1 John, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's confession mean? If we confess our sins, what does it mean to confess? To agree with God. Right, so confession is more than just an acknowledgement. So confession isn't just, yep, I did wrong. Nope, I'll, I'll wear that, that was my bad. Confession is, it was my bad. You were right, God. I shouldn't have done that. I chose my own way. I tried to think I was better. You were right. I was wrong. So confession is to agree with God. Now, there is a question in there. Can you think of some examples in the Bible that illustrate this truth, that his character motivates our confession? So are there places where you think, ah, there is somewhere where they saw the nature of God, they saw something about God, and it moved them to confession? It can be anything, and you don't have to give me a specific reference, just to, if you go to the story, ah, oh, that happened, and then this happened. I'm putting you on the spot a bit here. Yes, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that one from David is a great one. Right, right out there that, that David, Psalm 51, you know, David sees that he has sinned against God, against you, and you only have I sinned, he says. So he acknowledges, acknowledges that. That's probably one of the most obvious ones there, the most easily picked one out of Scripture because it's so clear there. Um, maybe one that's not quite so clear is, is Daniel. You know, at the end of Daniel's life, he's, he's studying and he's reading Scripture and he comes to this place where he's reading through Jeremiah and he finds, ah, we are almost there. God's plan is, is, if I've got this right, we are almost there. And he starts writing about how God promised that. And as he reads this, and as he's reading Jeremiah's prophecy, it says he comes in, one, in, in Daniel 9, he, he recognizes the glory of God. He praises God for his faithfulness. And that leads him into this great confession of the sins of Israel. He says, we're here because we sinned. Because we did, did wrong. So there's probably a few as you, you go through. I'll give you another moment if you want to think of one. But yeah, Joseph. That brings to mind um, Isaiah, Isaiah 6, right, you, you know what happens in Isaiah 6? Isaiah gets a vision of God, 
in his temple. And what's his response? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Leads him straight to confession. He begins to understand something more deeply of who God is. Confession. Character of God motivates our confession. James says in chapter 5, verse 16, Confess your trespasses to one another, uh, your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Confession and prayer for each other leads to healing. Right, now, that's not, it's not just limited to physical healing, so that doesn't mean that if we go around confessing our sins that our ailments will just all go away. It's, it's a broad statement of, of healing. It's the, the opposite of bitterness. When we start, start confessing our sins to God and we start seeking forgiveness from one another, then bitterness goes away and healing begins. Uh, A.W. Tozer uh, says this in, in regards to this. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one. While he looks at Christ, the very things he has so long been trying to do will be getting done within him. It will be God working in him to will and to do. Do we have things, you know, we often poorly call them besetting sins. You think, well, just keep doing it, just keep doing it. Here, Tozer calls them, you know, tinkering with our soul. You know, we just play with it because we don't really want to get rid of it. He says, you want, if you want to get rid of it, look to Christ. See who God is. And as you're looking to Christ, you will find God working in you. These things will be dealt with instead of just tinkering with them and playing around. So in our responses, his face evokes our faith, his character motivates our confession. Thirdly, our wonder leads to his will. So in, uh, I think I'm probably repeating myself here, how does God express his will? How do we know God's will? In the Word of God. Right? In the Word of God. That's how we know God's will. The Holy Spirit teaches us how to apply His words. And that's what we talk about when we talk about the Spirit working through the Word. He teaches us how to, how to understand it, how to apply it where we are at. So knowing God's will comes from knowing Him. And I know Him by knowing His Word. And so I know His will. When we know Him and His will, we can ask in confidence. So I don't have to guess. The more I know God, the more I know his will, the less I'm guessing if this is what God wants or doesn't want. Now, true, we're not perfect. We're never going to know God perfectly. So there's always going to be times where we're going to think, I don't know what God's will is. Because we're never going to get there here. But the more I know God, the less in my life I'm going to have those occasions where I think I don't know those times will decrease. 1 John 5, verse 14. 
and verse 15 says, This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Anything according to his will. And that's not the first time that's been said, is it? Because we've seen those verses already in John 14 and John 16. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. You know, if you know the will of God, if you know God and you go to God and you ask, you can ask with confidence because you know that if I ask according to his will, he is not going to refuse it. He can't refuse it. It's his will. And so the more I see God, the more I understand God, the more I know his will. And the less I have to guess. Fourthly, in our tonight is our worship empowers our warfare. Now, um, just trying to remember here, you can go back and look at Matthew 4 if you, if you need to. When Jesus is in the wilderness after his baptism and Satan comes to tempt him, how does Jesus respond to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness? Sorry? Using God's word. He uses God's word every time. Word-infused prayer. So as I take, take the word of God and I infuse it in my prayer and it becomes part of my life, it makes me ready to face the enemy. As I take God's word in and I'm, I'm meditating on it and I'm praying based on what God has revealed of himself in his word, that sets me strong. So that I can fight the enemy. So that I'm ready for the attacks that come each and every day. The Spirit allows us to apply the truth to daily life. You know, that's, that's why you know, we say the Word of God is a living book. And it's why we say we can believe it and we can sit down and say it has real effects today. Because when I sit down and I, I read and I take in what God says of himself, the Spirit uses it to help me understand how is that going to affect me today in my job? What does it mean for the way I treat my family or deal with the circumstances around me? You know, it's, it's crazy. that, And it's crazy and it's massively frustrating too when you talk to people because there are so many believers who complicate this aspect particularly of prayer and, and what prayer should be to, to battling in our spiritual warfare with so many extra biblical things to try and fight. You, you know, there are, there are, are books. You, it, I, I hate the spiritual section at Kurong because it's just, it's horrible. Like there's book after book there which tells you what you need to fight the battle against, against demons, to plot out. You can, you can buy out and you can plot the demonic hierarchy. There's, you can even find out, one guy has even plotted uh, what demons control which area of the world. I don't know how he found that out. He does that. And so if you're in this area, you pray against that particular demon. And that will, will lead you in your battle. There's formulas to follow and there's things to do that, so you can overcome spiritual battles in your life. Cast out demons and Satan in your warfare. It is not that complicated. It really isn't. 
You, you don't need formulas. You don't need to know what demon is in your area. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's not that complicated if you know your God. Know your God. We're not trying to, to pray to or about any other demon. If I know my God, and my God is changing me through his word and through prayer, it does not matter what demons I face, he's fitting me for the battle. So as I spend time in my prayer, God is readying me for the battles I'm going to face, the battles I am facing. You know, the Ephesians 6, right? the, the great passage on spiritual warfare, says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always. There's your formula. Get saved, read the Bible, and pray. There's your formula for battling Satan and the temptations of this world. Live a life of passionate worship. Now, we're going to jump into this, and we're going to see. So all of these things we've talked about, and these four principles, next week, we're going to go to Matthew 6, where Jesus tells us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to see all of these things clearly laid out in the way Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. And see, how does that shape the way I can pray every day on what I have seen and learned from this? So take some time this week to, I know you're probably familiar, many of you can probably quote the Lord's Prayer, but take some time and meditate on it. And like I said, take these four principles. See if you can find them in the Lord's Prayer as you, you look through it. See how we can translate these into a, a regular, robust prayer life that actually is satisfying and enjoyable. Don't miss the, the truth, though, that revelation produces a response. And our response fuels our confession. As we understand God's will and engage in the battle, he'll give us power for the mission that he has set us to. So when you come to the Bible, every time, whether it's in your own quiet time and you're going to spend some extended time there, or whether it's just in a short moment when you have a, a few minutes and you pull out your phone and just read a verse or two, or when you come to Bible study or church, any time the Word of God is open, come to it with expectation. Expect God to say something about who He is. Right? So, sure, there are times where we need to just sit down and we need to find out what it says. But even in those times where we sit down to just find out what it says, there should be an expectation that as I find out just what it says, I'm going to learn something new about God. It's going to change me. We should never, ever come to God's word with a whatever. Always expect God to do something with us. Even if it's just little. Like even if it's just one of those little course corrections. That come to God's word with expectation. Why we believe Hebrews 4 when it says the word of God is quick. And powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the dividing uh, asunder of soul and spirit. This, it really can change lives. It genuinely can. 
So don't just read the Bible for knowledge. Read it so it will transform you. Little by little, it will transform you. But it conform you as we began in Romans 12 to change the way you act, to change the way you think. The current preacher, uh, Steve Lawson, and I'll finish with this, says, the deeper we dig into the word, the higher we will rise in worship and the longer we will persevere in trials. The deeper we dig into the word, the higher we will rise in worship and the longer we will persevere in trials. Occasionally,